Namaste and welcome to another episode of the Vijara Mantan podcast. My name is Sumit Sharma and it's my great honor to be bringing this project to your ears. A Dharmic project, a project by Vijara Mantan, looking to explore modern day issues, concepts, challenges and societal pressures, all through a Hindu civilizational lens. Please tune in on vicharamantan.org, on Spotify and all streaming platforms. Very excited today to bring back Sohagji Shukla to the platform. Uh, Sohagji has been on Vicharamantan before, notably on Vicharamantan's Sustainable Narratives Conference a few years ago, where I was given the honor of interviewing her about President Donald Trump. Uh, and so if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back to VM's YouTube page uh, or on vicharamantan.org and watch that riveting conversation about what Trump means and nationalism and all interesting concepts of that nature. But today here, we have Sohagji to talk about America, the landscape there, the Hindu American Foundation, and all things in between. Sohagji comes from Philadelphia. She is the executive director and co-founder of the Hindu American Foundation. She did her bachelor's in religion and went on to do her law degree from the University of Florida and has been instrumental in some of the civil rights movements along with human rights and religious freedoms in America. I think we'll cover more of that as we get into the conversation. But Sohaji, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think it's our pleasure. I think we have a lot to learn from someone who has made their own foundation, you know, co-founded that uh, and some of the movements that you've been involved with. So very interested to, to talk to you about some of those in more detail. So where should we begin? So you have on your Twitter bio that you're not left, you're not right, you're a seeker with an open mind, with a Hindu lens. What, what does that mean? And why is that something you think needs to be in your Twitter bio? So I actually think that all the things leading up to Hindu lens, uh, not left, not right, seeker, open mind, all of that does make up the Hindu lens. And I think it's a lens that's really necessary in today's polarized environment, especially social media, where uh, it's an all or nothing, you're with me or against me approach. And my hope was, and perhaps this is naive, that on Twitter, people would actually look at my bio so. <laughs> <laughs> and say, okay, when she posts something, she's not trying to promote like a particular partisan view. There's some thought, discernment, vivek yeah. behind some of these issues because in that sense, um, you'll... If you look at the top image uh, on my Twitter as well that I put together, there's, you know, three different Hindu teachings, Vichar, Vairagya, and Vivek. And all of those, to me, kind of feed into what Hindu Dharma offers, but what Hindus can channel, because these are teachings that have come down yeah. to us. It's kind of built into our wisdom tradition to exercise these things, especially on social media where things get so vitriolic, where we're, we're uh, vulnerable to believing fake news yeah. and that sort of thing. And, and, so, and I, I agree, perhaps naive to think people would read that. Yes. The, the, internet, <laughs> the internet is a, it's a crazy place. Um, and I agree with that polarization, right? It is either this camp, that camp, with us or without. Um, and I don't think that's a great mentality to have, especially mm -hmm. when trying to talk about worldly topics, things that affect society. Like, it's a very colourful place. There's nuance in all conversation. Uh, and I think that one of the aims of Vijar Mantan is to break down those silos of conversation. Um, you, you talked about Vijar, Viragya, Vivek. Mm -hmm. uh, could we explain those a little bit for yeah. our listeners that, that don't know what those mean? Absolutely. So, Vijar is to think. Yeah. It's pretty simple. Um, think, especially in the social media realm, think before you share. That's more WhatsApp. Um, I think any one of us in the Indian and Hindu communities are in a space where the same forward is making its round. And if you take even just 30 seconds to go on some of these hoax website debunkers, yeah. you'll realize that it wasn't true, yeah. right? And it ends up whipping up a frenzy. People start believing it. 
Same thing can happen with a news headline, something about, say, India and the New York Times, um, which is generally tinged with more of what the New York Times editors want to mm, say about India exactly. as opposed to uh, what's happening on the ground. Try to, you know, look at other sources, but think about who wrote it, what lens are they coming from, where are they sitting from, what might their overall worldview be, and how is that informing the way the story is being told. So can, so can we verify it? I guess this leans into your background, right, from a legal profession? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I have a very hard time, and maybe it takes me longer uh, to kind of, if there's an issue, to figure out what exactly is going on. I will be looking at multiple sources. In law school, we're also trained to see both sides of the argument. Sure. Uh, because to be convincing of whatever my perspective is, I have to be just as aware and deeply knowledgeable about what the opposition sure. is going to say to me in order to be able to counter it. Does that, does that become conflicting at any point? Like, do you have to remain impartial or unbiased? Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm unbiased, and I, I certainly have my partialities. But I do think that it lends to thinking about the other side. And so long as you are not emotionally attached to your perspective, and that's where Vairagya comes in, okay to be objective, um, then as long as there's not attachment and you're open to the ideas that maybe my opposition has something that I've missed, maybe even if it's just empathy, that maybe they're, say it's hate speech coming or, or something, Not let me not use hate speech as an example, but say uh, appropriation. Right. If I immediately think like, oh, this person took our Hindu god and posted it somewhere, they're a Hindu-phobe. That's perhaps my initial mm. gut feel or, or reaction because I'm in the space of Hindu advocacy. But could it be ignorance? Sure. Could it be that that person actually has a positive intent of wanting to honor maybe whatever the deity it is that represents, but they don't understand the cultural mm. context of where it might be? Mm. So that's an opportunity uh, to build some bridges, build know, some bridges, and also maybe set aside your impartiality, sure. right? Uh, interesting, and I see the point. But you mentioned earlier, like deep fakes and the mm -hmm. way the internet is now. It can people can be quite conniving, they can, and, and manipulative, and perhaps come across as naive. But really, underneath, there's there's a lot of uh, implications and, and implied messaging and, and what have you. So, yeah, I maybe no. I'm just a skeptic. No, but... no, no. I, I I totally agree with you on that. That um, things have gotten far more sophisticated mm. and more difficult to um, discern. So, all of these things have not gotten any easier. They just take more energy and effort. Um, and then the, the last one is Vivek, and that's just to be discerning. Um, and to your point, right, if there are these fake news stories, I think all of us have a pretty good instinct. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you are a thoughtful person, if you are doing your best to be objective, I do think it makes it a little bit easier to then be discerning and to be able to say, this sounds a little off. Mm -hmm even on those deep fakes. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it, it's becoming an increasingly complex world and those yeah. types of things um, it's are going to be a challenge. Difficult to navigate. And I think it's only going to get harder. Like I remember a time before the internet mm -hmm. and, and how you would go and get information. You would go to a library yes. and check out a book. And But the more I look at sort of nuance now of, of information, it's like, well, who let that book get published? Who verified what was written mm -hmm. there? And especially when it comes to stories of like India and, and Hindu Dharma and all Dharma actually for that matter. Uh, how did that knowledge get to those books? And now that we have an open platform such as whatever, Twitter, Instagram, etc., people can relay information that perhaps we didn't have. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a challenging scenario to make sure it's verified, it's correct. And yeah. for Hinduism especially... 
and when I say Hinduism, I'm talking about all branches, everything, mm-hmm. sort of Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, everything that wraps up into that. Because it's so plural, it's hard to necessarily verify what's correct, what's not. And also, the, the, you know, the scriptures and the wisdom is not prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Everything can be taken at an in individual level. Uh, for anyone listening, if you just tune in to the Upanishads episode or the Hindu library series, you can just see the, the raft of information that comes from scripture and how it's about your personal journey and connecting with those. Uh, so I think there are challenges to be had. It's uh, an interesting space. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say that while the internet has provided a platform to put out uh, you know, biased or inaccurate information, that was always there. Mm-hmm. So um, my first kind of aha moment, if you want to call it that, in terms of you can't always believe what you read, was probably my first or second year of my undergraduate studies, and I'm a religion major. And many people now know Wendy Doniger's name, uh, this was 1989, 1990. I was actually reading Wendy Doniger in my classes when she wasn't kind of a household name, at least amongst more Hindu-aware um, community members. And I was, as I was reading her interpretations, they were so out of the park, like completely just didn't make any sense. So I went up to my professor, who happened to be Hindu, and I said, what is this? This makes no sense. This does not resonate with how I've heard these stories from my family members, from any satsangs that we went to, from my balvihar. And she said, well, you can't always believe what you read. I'd never had a teacher say that to me. And I was thinking back then, this isn't a book that's been not just like printed and the money gone into printing it, but there was some sort of review process mm. in which it was vetted by other scholars. How could something like this, that's not going to elucidate for the student how Hindus view particular stories in their tradition, how is that, um, how is that published worthy? But it was back then too. What the internet has done in some sense is it's allowed people to see what's happening. So you don't just have to be a religion major sure. to have to come across some of the, uh, some of the quote unquote scholarship that's yeah. out there on Hinduism that's actually lending to greater ignorance. It's and, true. you know, when, what was your first moment when you, or when you realized, was it before the end or, or after that you can't believe everything you read? That's a good, good question. I don't know if I can pinpoint my aha moment, but more recently, I realized that institutions mm-hmm. can be biased, polarized, even incorrect. And a highlight only a few years ago was was the uh, Rashmi Summit case with Oxford University. Mm-hmm. Now, growing up, especially here in England, Oxford University, prestigious, you know, etc. Like, and then just what happened, the way it played out. The way the university took a side and, and wasn't instrumental, I thought, wow, like this is amazing that somewhere as prestigious as Oxford and even Cambridge, you know, mm-hmm. you know, no one's safe here from the retirement of the podcast, right? <laughs> we'll put them all up on the stage. But I'll add Harvard, Yale and Princeton to exactly that Exactly <laughs> that, right? Across the pond. So well-known institutions who have been going for centuries in today's modern era are able to take sides like that and especially against uh, Sanatana Dharma, was a massive eye-opener for me. And ever since now, there's no one out there or no institution out there that I think couldn't be biased or bought. Mm-hmm. You know? um, just look at BBC, BBC News, right? Mm-hmm. Anything they, they produce on, on Hindu or India is anti. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sad to see because that's the, the go-to source for a lot of information, in the UK here especially. Uh, I'm sure there are similar challenges out, yeah. out in the States. No, absolutely. And in some sense, you know, um, I'm here for the, uh, I was here for an event uh, talking about religious freedom. And it was a number of British Hindu community organizations that came together in a historic event to talk about this. 
And uh, one of the things that I talked about was the fact that our communities, at least in the United States, have been largely successful in the education and economic space, I suppose, or, or from those measures. But what that has lent to is a complacency. But when things like the dismantling Global Hindutva Conference mm. happen, and you have these scholar activists who very much have their bias and are very upfront about it, yeah. they abuse university policy and you know, are sponsoring a conference, a quote-unquote academic conference. It really was a political <laughs> yeah, conference. that's terrible. Right, it's... and they used all the logos, yeah. right? They didn't have permission, but they gave the imprimatur mm. of the universities. But, you know, the campaign that the Hindu American Foundation ran um, was a successful one in that, one, we made the universities aware of the fact that they had employees who were misusing um, their logos or countervailing most policies. Um, and so you saw the logos kind of coming down, but there were others that doubled down. Really? And it makes you wonder that, you know, the, the, the reason they gave was academic freedom. Right. But I've always said that, yes, there's academic freedom, but academic freedom comes with academic integrity mm. and a responsibility. Yes, an academic is supposed to be researching whatever fields and expanding the knowledge that's there, but their role is also one of a teacher. Yeah, for sure. And they should be teaching students not what to think, but how to think. And that conference or what happened to Rashmi really shows a failure on the core purpose yeah, for sure. of a university and and a and an academic or scholar yeah it's terrible it's uh heart-wrenching at best mm -hmm. um but lots of advocacy work and and you mentioned there the hindu american foundation which, which you co-founded let's let's talk about that a little bit so hindu american foundation educational and advocacy organization established in 2003 w what is that and why does it <laughs> exist <laughs> good question so we started in 2003. Uh, most of the co-founders were born and raised in the United States. So we had grown up going through the American school system. And from as early as sixth grade, we saw that disconnect, the same disconnect I saw in my first year of uh, college or second year of college. We saw it in sixth grade where... Uh, Hinduism and India were reduced to caste, cows, and karma. And uh, then as we moved on to college and grew older, we saw the same biases in academia and in media. And then, you know, college is a time where you start getting politically engaged. Yeah. Your political ideas are starting to form. And you know, we're so idealistic at that age and we want to start looking at, well, where are the struggles and where have, have people not been able to flourish as a result of institutionalized bias or discrimination? And what we discovered is not only have there been so many champions of civil rights prior to us in order for us to be able to uh, succeed in a secular democracy, but there are many people in our larger Hindu family who don't have that luxury, right? Hindus in Pakistan or Bangladesh or Afghanistan or what happened to Kashmiri Hindus mm -hmm. getting cleansed out of their ancestral homeland or Hindus in Bhutan. A lot of people don't even know that Bhutan had a tremendous Hindu population and they were completely kicked out and now they're resettled across the globe. What we set out to do is create an institution that would try to address all of these issues. One core problem that we identified is that people simply don't know what Hinduism is about and who we are as a people. And so that's our education um, and you can't portfolio. Rely, and you can't rely on the schools to do that. Oh my goodness. Right. The schools are part of the problem. Uh, the schools... 
And with the state being complicit in this, because the state, each of the 50 states, set the curriculum. So that is where you basically inculcate generational ignorance. Because yes. India and Hinduism are taught at around anywhere between 6th and 10th grade. And I'll just tell you, to give you a, an idea of what that looks like, my unit was world history, ninth grade. And I grew up in Cupertino, California, which today is very diverse. Back then it wasn't. And my teacher had me stand up as the only brown Indian Hindu student in the class. And, and, and said, what did she say? Take the class? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, it gets better. What is your caste? Really? Did not know. Uh, have your parents arranged your marriage? Knew the answer to that. No way. And are your parents saving up for your dowry? This is what Indian culture and Hinduism was reduced to. I was literally assigned to go home and find out. This is this caste trope is something yeah. that's supposed to be so central yeah. to our identity. This caste doesn't even come from, from Hinduism. It's exactly. And I'm in ninth grade, so I'm 13 or 14. And so did my parents do that rotten a job that they didn't mm -hmm. inculcate into me what our caste was because it's supposed to be so central, right? I mean, right there you see lived reality and then what is taught as common knowledge not having any relationship to one another. That's terrible. So we, in our education portfolio, we start from reforming the textbooks and being active in that. We also have a Hinduism 101 program in which we provide for free educators uh, information about Hinduism, lesson plans, explainers, toolkits that allow them to teach this next generation of Americans a more accurate, academically vetted understanding of Hinduism and Hindus. We also work with reporters because what happens from the elementary school level you get these negative stereotypes, false stereotypes into your consciousness. This is what India is. This is what Hinduism is. And then you grow up to become a journalist. You grow up to become an academic. You might grow up to become a politician. And that's what you know. Right. Right. So um, education was something that we felt was very important. Just, just to add on that education piece, we've had similar challenges here and Again, I must be naive to this, but I was speaking with someone on the weekend about who influences the national curriculum here in the UK from a religious perspective on something specific like Hinduism. And then I found out that each council have a local sort of learning authority. And so we had some friends approach the councils to say, hey, give us a list of all the people on your local education authority. Mm -hmm. How many of them are Hindu? Right. And I think the, the answer was close to zero. Wow. So you have people that are not from the religion or the faith, or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I say that is on the podcast, we've talked a lot about linguistic hygiene. Yes. Right? So religion really isn't the correct word, but we won't get into that now. And so you have people who are not part of that movement. Right. Teaching or setting the, the agenda or the curriculum to what we teach kids and you know, exactly. And that's 2022. And what you're talking about is a sort of few years ago, right? Right. So. And, you know, when you bring that up, uh, in the United States, it's a little bit different. Some of the states offer the public an opportunity to comment and weigh in on the curriculum. So where you say there's no Hindu representation from a top-down approach, it doesn't get any better from a grassroots up approach either. Uh, well, probably one of the things that put HAF on the map was a lawsuit that we initiated against the State Board of Education in California because there, as this public process was happening, the Jewish community was allowed to weigh in through a fair, open, and transparent process. The Muslim community was able to do that. The Sikh and the uh, Christian communities were able to do that. But when the Hindu community wanted to weigh in, these academics, again, these scholar activists, come in at the last minute after the Hindu parents and the community efforts are making some headway to break down some of the stereotypes that are 
being taught as truth. And all of a sudden, you have these hardworking Hindu parents that are labeled Hindu nationalists. They have nothing to do with India. They're living in the United mm. States, trying to do right by their American children. So these are the types of challenges that we've faced in the education space. Well, why do you think that is? Why such a big opposition? To me, it's, it's Hinduphobia. It really is because you're delegitimizing and this framework comes from actually the Jewish community. How do you distinguish between legitimate uh, critique of the state of Israel and anti-Semitism? And you can really take this framework and fit it into how do you distinguish between legitimate criticism of uh, the Indian government and Hinduphobia? And so there's, there's three things. You are demonizing the community that's trying to speak out or the individual who's trying to speak out. You are delegitimizing the issues that they're trying to raise and you're holding them to double standards. None of the other faith communities um, had any sort of allegation of dual loyalty or somehow being loyal to some foreign power as if we're puppets being remote controlled, right? Um, what we raised in terms of stereotypes and the impacts that it has on our children. Uh, we conducted a survey several years ago of Hindu American students and found a direct correlation between um, feelings of shame and awkwardness and isolation and uh, the incidence of bullying. Uh, those increased as the inaccuracies in the curriculum uh, were the worse the inaccuracies, the greater the chances that the child would feel isolated. The greater the emphasis on caste, the more likely that a student was going to have those feelings of shame or, uh, or get bullied. So there's a real impact. There were people literally testifying, almost saying that, well, the Hindu children deserve it, right? So, so those are the types of challenges where um, those three things, when you demonize, when you delegitimize, you're essentially dehumanizing yeah. people. There was, a, there was an incident recently, I caught it on social media, where this young Hindu boy was being strangled in, in mm -hmm. the, uh, the school canteen or whatever. And I didn't read into it too much, but the school was saying it was his fault. Right. Uh, just incredible. Right. Uh, and unfair but and it's all quite sad really because you're you're trying to or people are trying to dehumanize or uh, denigrate a society who are high performers mm -hmm. who are in general peaceful people and and right. contributors to society in, in an outstanding way uh, at least here in the uk you know the sort of top doctors top professions uh, and I, I don't know what the stats are, but I, I think Hindus rank quite highly in, in highest performers mm -hmm. and, uh, and in that donation space. So what's it like in America? Uh, how do Hindus contribute to society? Namaste. This is the Vichar Manthan podcast. Have you agreed with or disagreed with any of the topics? Do you have some comments to share? We would love to know more. Please email in podcast at vicharmanthan.org. Uh, it, it's immeasurable, right? If we just look at today's contributions, uh, whether it's in STEM, whether it's in the hospitality industry and other spaces, um, the contributions of Hindu Americans is very much a part of the American success story. Uh, and, and we're starting to see greater political participation. That's not coming without its challenges sure. because Hindu American uh, politicians and donors are being held to a different standard and they're being attacked um, in ways that uh, other faith community uh, representatives are not. And that's where, that's where our advocacy uh, piece comes in. You know, early on, one of the decisions that we made, um, and credit goes to Mihir Megani, um, was that we were looking at other faith communities to see how were they meeting the needs of their community? And it came down to a professionalized model that they were getting people to dedicate their careers to advocacy and to education on behalf of the community. 
So these are people who go to university and they get an education degree. They get a, you know, political science degree or a law degree. And then rather than joining another NGO, they join an NGO that's there to serve the needs of the Hindu American community. And so that's, that's probably one of the unique things about HAF. We have a full-time staff of 14 and this is their, this is their full-time job. They don't do anything else. Um, You know, people often ask me, well, so where do you work? (laughs) And I said, I work at the Hindu American foundation. This is my full-time job. Uh, But what that allows us to do is one, have the subject matter expertise, which allows the materials that we're presenting or the perspectives that we're offering to have credibility and weight. Um, Because where policies are made, where policies are shaped, where content is created, all those other people have that pedigree. Mm. And that's where oftentimes our community lags because the volunteer model is amazing and we've done so much. We have made incredible strides in building our institutions that are preserving and promoting Hindu Dharma to the next generation. But how do we bridge the divide between our community and the broader community? And the broader community uh, is doing all those things eight to five. If you have something else going on eight to five, you're not at the table. You're not at those conversations. So our advocacy portfolio um, is twofold. We look at domestic issues uh, where um, we're focused on civil rights and some of the challenges there. Textbook reform also falls into that because it's both education Mm -hmm. and advocacy. And then we also have been documenting human rights atrocities against Hindu minorities, primarily throughout South Asia, but there are other hotspots, as I mentioned, Bhutan, um, uh, we have Jammu and Kashmir, uh, there's also Trinidad, Tobago, and uh, Fiji, Sri Lanka, and other places. And part of both education and advocacy, it, it requires also community capacity building, because we can't do it alone. And until we have Hindus speaking up, uh, we can't be heard. You can't have one organization represent millions of people, let alone one billion on the planet. And therefore, you know, you mentioned that, you know, we're a peaceful community. We're also a passive community at mm-hmm. times. So empowering, and it's, it, I, I don't fault, there is a deep psychological trauma after a thousand years of colonization. Oh, for sure. Right. People don't understand that. Yeah. Right. And it isn't even just the British. They were just the last. They were the they, last. Like exactly. the 300 years. This was French and, and all the others that came before that, Portuguese, mm-hmm. etc. that that colonized. So yeah, when you when you colonize a, a country, a great nation state for over a thousand years, things get lost along the way. But I think it's up and coming. India is the next superpower. I, sure. I agree with that. I agree with that. But there's there's a There's that aspect. And the second aspect is going back to where our successes are. Um, If you asked me to program a computer, (laughs) that's not going to happen. I'll probably break it before I can even uh, turn it on. But if you ask me to write something or go present an argument, bam, you've got me. You got the right person. But speaking is something that anyone can do, right? And so... We have uh, our Dharma Ambassadors Program and a Dharma Advocates Program that walk people through who may be coming from fields where these sorts of conversations are not natural to making them a little bit more natural. How do you talk to your neighbor about what Hinduism is about? How do you articulate thousands of years of history and these very complex and nuanced concepts like dharma or karma or all of those things in simple language that the other person is going to understand and knowing full well what stereotypes that person is carrying into that conversation. And then same thing with our dharma advocates, it's teaching them how the system works. 
How is a law made? What's required? How important is your voice in picking up the phone and calling your local congressman? Mm. People don't realize how powerful they are. Yeah. And it's just a matter of maybe a minute to pick up the phone and say, I don't like what you said about India, or I don't like what the textbooks are saying, and I need you to help me, and I need you to help protect our community. And that's all it takes sometimes. That's an interesting program. How does, how does one read more about that or get involved? You can just go to hinduamerican.org and uh, look up our Dharma Advocates program or our Dharma Ambassadors program and register. It happens once a month. It's online. We've actually had, I just gave, we've, we also have a special one on how to talk about caste because this is an issue that's really come up. I know it it's happened here in the UK in terms of um, efforts to institutionalize caste into law and uh, through the courts and through policies. So we had one and I had someone tune in from Australia. So it was 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> For them. Right. So it's become quite popular. We have people ca- tuning in from, uh, we've had some people in Nairobi. So lots of tangents. And actually, before I forget, and, and we were talking about contributions that, that Hindus and Indians have made to society, and we're talking about professionalism as well. Uh, I would be amiss if I didn't get to mention that the top companies of the world are all Indian or of Hindu origin. You know, the CEO of, of IBM, Google, Microsoft, you know, Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadella, uh, Pepsi, Adobe, MasterCard, and even more recently, the new Twitter CEO, Parag Agarwal, um, come from that civilizational, from, from our ancestry. So that's a proud moment for me. I work in the tech space mm-hmm. uh, and, and knowing, even if you just look at Google and Microsoft, that those CEOs come from India and from humble beginnings, uh, talks about the success story coming out of India and and I think where India is going in, in, in the next uh, few decades. So Yeah, absolutely. I think in some sense, though, our, our, our great successes are our weakness in that we have let some of these longstanding challenges like, uh, you know, false and negative stereotypes, which then can feed into... Uh, it can feed into discrimination. It can feed into hate crimes. And, you know, recently we've been seeing uh, temples getting vandalized and robbed. It can also, uh, you know, lend to the denial of our own civil rights, which is what we're seeing in the United States. College campuses, there's some activist groups that... Uh, well, I don't even want to say for lack of a better word, but they are truly anti-Hindu mm-hmm. activist groups. And they have, with the connivance of scholar activists who also are anti-Hindu, convinced some universities to add caste as a protected, special protected class category alongside race, mm-hmm. gender, um, religion, or national origin. So what this has done is instituted the first facially discriminatory class that targets a group on the basis of their national origin and maybe religion by its very definition, a discriminatory protected class. It's a, it's an oxymoron. You can't have that, right? Like how do you discriminate? How do you add a discriminatory clause into your non-discrimination policy. And part of this happens because there's stereotypes that go unca- you know, unchallenged. And when we're successful, it's very easy to forget that you have a simmer. There are other challenges. Yeah, and yeah. then it hits a boiling point, but you haven't been aware that there was something simmering. I, I think I'm quite naive to a lot of this stuff. So I, you know, I, I champion the efforts of, of the Hindu American Foundation and and all the things that you advocate. Um, and, and, and encourage everyone listening to actually go onto that website, have a look mm-hmm. at what's going on. And, and there's a podcast too that, that the yes. HAF run, um, That's So Hindu. Uh, so maybe there'll be a cross-collaboration there one day. With, We'd with, love to do that. With Vichara Mantan, that'd be awesome. Um, 
all, all very serious stuff. So I, I want to break away from that for a moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, Harvey, you tell me you've heard the podcast before, so you should be anticipating what, what's coming up now. The uh, rapid fire round. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> I have listened and I forgot about this. Okay, let's go. So, Harvey, <laughs> what goes into your perfect breakfast smoothie? It would be frozen cherries, dark chocolate chips, almond milk, and agave. And almond butter. Did I say almond butter? That works. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite book? Bhagavad Gita. Can you tell us why? Every time I go to it, I learn something new. Every time I have a problem, I get clarity. It just... It's everything. Awesome. And we have an episode on, on uh, the podcast about Bhagavad Gita. I think it's number 10. I should know them really. <laughs> um, but awesome stuff. If you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Oh my gosh, superpower. I, I don't know. I don't know what, what superpower. So it's like x-ray vision or... I wish I could change people's mind if that could be a superpower. <laughs> but then that could be dangerous in yeah. case I have wrong thoughts. I would like to fly. Okay. I would love to fly. I've thought about that. Wouldn't it be cold? Or like, you know, you'd have to ha- wear like a Yeah, you, suit. you would. But if I could fly, I would imagine that wouldn't be a problem for sure. whatever reason. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Where would you fly to? I would just like to see the world from that perspective. Sure. It wouldn't have to be far. It could just be over the house or... Just, just to the shops and back. Over to the park. Yeah, it'd be so much more efficient. So that you use less fuel and... You know, exactly. No, but just the... You know, oftentimes I have a dog and I oftentimes wonder what is the world from down there. Yeah, so it would just be... I would like to fly. Sure. And yes, I could go places if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only take three items with you, what would they be? Mm. I'd have my Gita, a knife of some kind, and uh, matches. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I'd have to have a lot of matches because I don't know how long it's going to be. but <laughs> And hopefully the knife would help me find food. Okay. And the matches would help me cook it. But I don't know what I would cook it in. Yeah. But you don't need to think about it too much. There's only three yeah. items. In <laughs> if, I had a, if I had a fourth, it'd be a pot. Okay, fine. fine. <laughs> Makes sense. Could you describe a moment for us where your paradigm shifted? Was there a moment in your life where your life just took a different course? A paradigm shift? Uh, yeah, I, I remember I was probably in... 10th grade, I had been asking my parents a lot of questions about why do we do this? What's the purpose of arti? And for them, Hindu Dharma was through osmosis. They learned everything and they they carried the tradition on. The why was not as important to them. And I think the case for most people of that generation, even my parents, right? I ask my mom all the time, why do we do this? Why do that? You know, she can't explain it to me, Mm -hmm. but like she knows within herself. Right. Um, And I think it's the job and the duty of today's generation to figure that figure that all out. Yeah, exactly. And understand why it's important. My parents, I feel, were had that humility and intellectual curiosity and self awareness to say we should get her the answers she's mm. seeking, as opposed to just because mm. or because we've always done it this way. And so they enrolled me in uh, Chinmay Mission. And I remember the first discussion, um, we went in and we, we were talking about the Vedas. And it was just that one class where I'm like, there's so much more to this. Mm-hmm. It's not just the arti we do. Not to diminish the arti, but that sparked a lifelong learning for me. Mm-hmm. That I, one I, day. I feel like I'm forever learning about the contributions our ancestors have made to society, to humanity. And I talk sometimes of sort of, you know, the reason why 
I am a part of Vichar Mantan and giving my time in, in this voluntary capacity is because our ancestors had a rich, rich tapestry of information on mm -hmm. everything, you know, astrology, education systems, political systems, how to govern people, what, what ethics looks like, civics. Health and well-being. Yes. I mean, oh, everything. Course. How do we forget yeah. that, right? Yoga. Yeah. Ayurveda, like all of that stuff. And the world knows it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Look at the popularity of these things. Yoga and Ayurveda specifically. For sure. Golden milk latte, pay your $7 or whatever it is for it. <laughs> so along those lines, and something we try to champion here on Vicharamantan a lot, is the term sustainability. And, mm -hmm. and I think we use that because people don't understand dharma mm -hmm. or, or, or dharmic influence necessarily. Um, but what does the term sustainability mean to you? Hmm. So, to sustain is dharma. And I boil dharma down to a three-legged stool. Ahimsa, or non-harming. Brahmacharya, which some people will say celibacy, but that's just one iteration of it. But I see it as moderation hmm. or control of senses. And that automatically lends to moderation. And satya, truth. These three pillars, so long as you can try to keep them in balance in whatever you do. Something as simple as if I'm trying to teach my son a lesson, I could be brutally honest, um, but not think about the impact of my words mm. on him. And even thinking about how many times am I going to tell him the same thing, mm. where that self-control and moderation comes in to trust, sure. um, to not just be so attached and let the attachment keep driving my behavior. I think I always look at these three pillars as a way to sustain that balance, starting from something as mundane as my relationship sure. with my child yeah. to broader issues of how are we going to approach this existential crisis like you know Hindus suffering human rights atrocities in Pakistan and keeping those three things in balance so that even in our quest for justice we're not willing to compromise mm. on dharma wow and that is what dharma or to sustain means to me that's beautifully put thank you for that if you had to fight a horse-sized chicken or 10 chicken-sized horses, which would you pick? 10 chicken-sized horses. Okay, why? <laughs> I feel like I have four limbs, mm. so I could multi-chop, <laughs> yeah, yeah, kick, get them, get right. some, you know, fight them off that way, as opposed to one big thing, it could outweigh me. Sure. No, that's, that's fair. Uh, I get mixed responses to that, so that works. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, wow. Best piece of advice. Um, well, it, it wasn't given to me directly, okay. uh, but it's from uh, Gurudev or Swami Chinmanand, and I, I say it all the time to my kids too. Do your best and leave the rest. Mm. And that's the essence of the Gita, isn't it? Um, we do what we can. Mm. We do it with good intent. Um, that's not enough, of course. Do your homework. Yeah. Come in prepared. <laughs> but then there's only so much you can control. Uh, and so, and even in looking at, you have to have goals. Uh, so that, you know, some people misinterpret that as not having goals. No, you have to have your goals, but at some point you need to just focus on what you can do here and now. Sure. That's, that's really good. Uh, I ask all of my guests on the podcast to make a commitment. So is there something in your life that, uh, you'd like to strive for or you've been putting off, mm -hmm. uh, or I, I don't know, all of the above. Is there something that you can commit to live here on the Vijayamantan podcast so that all our listeners can hold you accountable? Oh, <laughs> man. 
But it's uh, it's for self development. So no, is, it is. Is there a commitment that you? Can it make? is. Uh, you know, during COVID, I got really good about meditating. Okay. And like all things that are good for you, they tend to fall yeah. onto the back burner. So I will commit to restarting my meditation practice. Brilliant. That's, are you going to check in on me? I will have to. Oh, boy. I will have to. <laughs> and, and, and just to your point, they often say, if you can't make 10 minutes for meditation, then you need an hour. That's true. Yeah. That is true. And it's not an excuse anymore to say, my work is my meditation. <laughs> my work is my seva. But no, it's not my meditation. <laughs> and arguably, doing that meditation will make the rest of your life that much more fulfilled, that much more sustainable and, and, and manageable. Um, no, you're, you're right. I, I could see an immediate difference. Um, and especially in this space, uh, I think that uh, the challenges that Hindus are facing right now have reached a fevered pitch. Um, on multiple fronts, and not to say that they're all the same. Mm. Uh, facing um, false negative stereotypes is very different from the life or death situation that a Hindu is facing in Pakistan or Afghanistan where they're facing extinction. Uh, but all of those are on a spectrum mm. that require concerted efforts by the global Hindu community to speak up, and to build bridges with allies who will join in our fight. Yeah. And it's a human challenge, right? It's, it doesn't even matter like what religion or, or faith-based group you subscribe to. These are human challenges that, that we're trying to, trying to face. I was speaking to someone on the weekend. It's like, to be Hindu is to be human. Absolutely. Um, there's nothing that's divisive mm -hmm. in, in, in Sanatana Dharma or, or in Hinduism. Um, it's very much an in inclusive you know, beneficial for all, for sure. in, in, in a non-harming non way. Um, I mean, ultimately, our understanding is this body, everything external about us, is not what's real, mm. right? So then what, what's a nationality? Mm. What's a religious identity? Yeah. What's gender? None of that really ultimately matters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I would even say that it transcends being human in that sense and being able to see the humanity as the one emanation of the divine that it is yeah. and honor it in that manner. Yeah, that's, that's beautifully put. That's a great way to put it. Uh, I want to I zoom in on something that's happened recently out in America with the swastika mm -hmm. and, and the Hawking Cross. Uh, could you help me understand that a bit yeah, further? What, what's going on and why is it important? So, you know, the Nazi Hockenkreuz is a symbol of hate that really uh, brought about gross human rights suffering and, or atrocity against the Jewish community and other communities. And um, many white nationalists and neo-Nazi groups have taken on that symbol. And so um, in the United States, in an effort to combat uh, that threat, many states have criminalized the display of the swastika um, New York recently tried to pass legislation where the swastika would be taught as a symbol of hate, except that they're talking about the swastika mm. and not the Nazi Hakenkreuz, right? At the, and there's been research done on this. I'm not an expert. There's people who know far better than I do. That there was a, even Hitler in Mein Kampf refers to his emblem that he selected for his party as the Hakenkreuz, which means hooked cross. At some point in time, all of a sudden, it started being called the swastika. Right. Now, the swastika is not just a symbol. It, it, the word actually has meaning. Like all Sanskrit words, mm. the, the, the set, there's a vibration, there's a sound, there, the term itself has a meaning. So it's not just a descriptor, but it also explains a meaning. So 
ironically enough, you know, in our circles, oftentimes people will talk about Max Mueller very dismissively, but there is a, a, an exchange, I think it's between an anthropologist in the United States having a correspondence with Max Mueller because they were finding that ancient symbol everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, yeah. And so they were beginning to call it the swastika. And Max Mueller said it should only be called the swastika within the subcontinental context because it means something there. Call it, find out what the meaning is in other places. So for Native Americans, it's the whirling log. Um, there's another word called filflot. So there's a lot of different words and meanings to this ancient symbol. So obviously humans were tapping into some energy, yeah. right? So this is the type of education that's required because when you demonize or criminalize the swastika, or if you teach about it as a symbol of hate, you're going to create a stigma for Hindu school children, instill shame mm -hmm. against their own tradition and inhibit their uh, ability to freely practice their religious tradition. So the Hindu community has really gotten engaged on this um, from an advocacy perspective. And either through incremental change or wanting to get change altogether, there's different approaches, but really taking this opportunity to go to our state legislators and say, you have to make a distinction between the swastika and the Nazi Hakenkreuz and um, ensure that law enforcement, educators, and the public at large know the difference so that Hindus are not stigmatized and so that they are able to freely exercise their religion. And, and you've seen some success recently with that or we're one step closer? So in California, uh, the swastika was, uh, it's been criminalized. It's been in the penal code that uh, displays, certain displays of the swastika, the noose and the burning cross um, carried a, uh, a fine um, and punishment with That's it. That's so, so, hold on, let me just <laughs> translate that into real life terms. When I go to the mandir or we, we do a puja at home, we make use of the swastika and it's a very sort of holy, divine mm -hmm. uh, symbol of prosperity and success. Mm -hmm. And so are you saying in California I could be penalized for using that symbol? There were some, some contours to that okay. in terms, probably not in your house, law enforcement's not going to come. However, uh, it was on, it was on someone else's property, right. but suppose you have a swastika in your car mm. and we know this has happened. We've had people call us about this and you're parked in a parking lot. That's someone else's property, right? right? Uh, we had someone call us where the parking attendant to his company's parking lot said, you can't park here unless you're going to remove that symbol, Whoa. right? So now that person wasn't in California, but those are the types of ways in right. which this comes to fore. So what happened in California is that the punishments for what they deemed three symbols of hate, uh, the noose, burning cross, and swastika, were different. So one assembly member wanted to amend the penal code in order to make the punishment all the same. We seized upon that opportunity by saying, if you're going to be amending the penal code, we need to remove yeah. not this swastika out of it altogether and replace it with the Hockenkreitz. Yeah. Which is just like common sense, but also integrity to, to what's going on. Exactly. Here. And you can understand the sentiments of people who don't like the hooked cross. Yes. Because of its, you know, connotations and, and with Adolf Hitler and, and that anti-Semitism movement. And I'm very sympathetic to that. Yes. But they are not the same thing. Well, I, let me just say at the uh, outset here, this has been, we have a long-standing working relationship with several Jewish organizations. And this is a very difficult topic. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's an important one that really tests our friendship. And I would say that it's deepened our friendships yeah. with many of the groups, that 
it's given us an opportunity to come to the table to better understand one another and to figure out how can we work together to educate our respective constituencies on uh, what the swastika means to Hindus and also seeing if members of the Jewish community can also recognize that what has terrorized them is not a swastika, yeah. right? And that, yeah. that's a big challenge. It's a long challenge. Um, as, and, yeah, and I, think it, I think it can only happen in mature conversations yes. where we are seeking to learn from each other and be open in dialogue, not oppressive or in closed situations or fickle-minded circles, mm-hmm. right? No, this absolutely. Is not, this is not literally talking about generations of trauma and people Mm-hmm. And then the swastika, who has transcended millennia, I would say, of, of symbolism throughout history. Right. So it's a, it's a tough, tough place to be. I think what's helpful in those conversations is to remember that there are so many challenges that are shared mm. that if we can work on our shared challenges and we have, it makes it a little bit easier then to have conversations about the things we might yeah. disagree on. This is what I was talking about earlier. These are humanity's challenges, right? For yeah. society to flourish. Yeah. We've, we've got to be able to do this. Yeah. Um, so look, for the listeners at home, I'm sure you can sort of read more about this on, on Hindu American Foundation or just, just go online and um, pay attention to which news sources you're, yes. you're tuning into because some of them uh, will, will be biased or, or paid from above. But, you know, that's your decision to make. Um, Tarji, I think we're nearing the end of what's been a great conversation and we'd love to have you back. But are there some parting thoughts? Is there something you could leave our listeners with that can help them flourish in their own thinking? Oh, boy. Uh, I think, you know, growing growing awareness about the challenges that we face, um, while it motivates a lot of people to fight, uh, and, and rightfully so, I hope that it also motivates people to not just learn about our tradition, but imbibe the transformative teachings that it offers. Because one, it'll, it'll give you the energy and the clarity to fight the fight. But when you're not fighting the fight, it really will provide you the tools to live a happy and fulfilled life and to to be good to yourself, to be good to your family, and to be good to your society. That's awesome. That's great words to live by. Um, Thank you so much for sharing. And and I loved what you mentioned uh, at the start about Vichar, Viragya, and Vivek. So the ability to think is is what I'm looking at and about to share or comment upon. Mm-hmm. Is it true? Is it informative? Will it benefit others? Uh, to be objective, Viragya, is it actually helpful and kind? Is what I'm looking at going to be useful for the people I'm sharing it with? And the Vivek, can I discern? Can I verify? What's the source? Where has this come from? Um, so lots of words of wisdom from, from Sahaji here today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for telling us about the work of the Hindu American Foundation, uh, especially in the education space, advocacy space, and community empowerment. Um, I think in the UK here, we, we look to the HAF as a, as a beacon of, of integrity and hope to replicate some of that work. And I'm sure we'll lean on you to, to help with that further. So Sahaji, thank you very much for joining us today on the Vijar Mountain podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I've been in London for four days now, and Vichar Manthan and so many other organizations are doing amazing work, and so I look forward to working together. Thank you. Uh, and to all our listeners on, on the Vichar Manthan podcast, thank you for tuning in. Uh, as ever, always interested to hear what you think about what's been spoken today. And uh, if you don't know, one of the aims of Vichar Manthan is not necessarily to provide a conclusion. We're here to open the dialogue, see if we can champion conversation and discourse around challenges that we face together at a human level, um, and specifically from, from the lens of, of a Dharmic civilization, a Hindu civilization, who for 10,000 plus years 
have been on the planet championing human evolution and flourishing. So uh, hopefully we've been able to enlighten the conversation a bit further. Uh, so I am interested to hear. Uh, and coming up soon, actually, I'm very happy to announce there will be a sustainable narratives conference in September. We'll be discussing our seven key themes, uh, things like religion, governance, wealth, civics, literature, political economy, political theory, uh, and all other important matters, important ideas. So I encourage you to invest in ideas that matter. Have a look at vijaramanthan.org for all things to do with book clubs, uh, papers, other discourses. And of course, we'd love to have you back on the Vijaramanthan podcast. You can tune in on Spotify, Google Podcasts, all streaming platforms, and indeed YouTube. My name is Sumit Sharma. This was the Vijaramanthan podcast. Namaste. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vijar Manthan podcast. We hope it was engaging and perhaps you have comments or suggestions. Please do email or contact us on our socials.